Have you ever heard the phrase, never meet your heroes? Maybe you're like me. You idolize your favorite athlete. There's probably kids here or adults who idolize their favorite athlete, your favorite actor or actress, singer, or maybe here, your favorite theologian or pastor. Those are the guys you kind of put up on pedestals or girls you put up on pedestals. If you play baseball, what'd you do? You mimic their stance at the plates. Like, I want to I look like this guy. I want to feel like this guy. Or you set up a camera in your <clears throat> living room and you rehearse your favorite scene. Or you belted your life song in the shower or on the way to work in your car. Saying, man, I, I wish I was this person. You dreamt of meeting him or her in person and just to breathe the same air that they breathe. I wonder what it would like to be in this person's presence. To this day, I still vividly remember having the opportunity to meet someone I never saw play. He played before my time. But loved the way he played baseball. Some of you adults know him. The kids probably don't know him. Pete Rose loved the way he played the game. At a, at a store in a Vegas strip mall, this is probably 15 years ago, maybe 20 years ago, I saw a, 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 an advertisement above a store that said, come and meet Pete Rose. And so, what do you think? My heart, like, jumped. I was like, oh my gosh, I get to meet my hero. This guy, I've always, I've seen YouTube videos, I've seen MLB specials in this guy, I can't wait to meet this guy. Is he anything in person like I saw on TV? I was elated until I looked at the line below, come and meet Pete Rose. And it read, for only $99. I was like, I'm not doing that, I'm not meeting him. For, it wasn't, wasn't for a sign ball. It wasn't for a photo op. It was just to shake hands with him. That cost 99 bucks to meet my hero. You might have figured out he was no longer my favorite player. I have to, I have to pay to meet him. Is this what it's like to meet Jesus? Maybe it sounds great on paper. Heard a few testimonies. You're like, Yeah. I can see myself meeting him. Sounds great, but to meet him in person as the Greeks do in John 12. The Greeks who are Gentiles like you and me, they longed to meet him. And the crowd was utterly confused a few verses later. It's like, are you sure you're the person? You're, you're the son of man. You're the Messiah. You're, you're not what I expected. I'm not, sure, I'm not sure I signed up for this. And that's because he was better than they expected. Versus me and Pete Rose, Pete Rose was not as good as I expected. And just before this, in, at the early part of John 12, you have Mary anointing Jesus for both his burial and his, his kingship. Usually it's just kingship, but she anoints him for burial and kingship. And then the joyous reception by the people for this Messiah sent by God to redeem you from your sins. And so we're going to see this in three points. First, seeking Jesus. This is verses 20 to 26. 
right after, notice verse 19, that's where we left off last time, the Pharisees' concerns, like, well, the whole world's going to go after him. And then who comes in verse 20? The world. And they come and meet Jesus. And then second is hearing Jesus, verses 27 to 33. In order to meet the divine Son of Man, the Messiah who has come, you have to get to know him. You have to know who he is, who he says he is. Not what you think he is. And lastly is trusting Jesus, verses 34 to 36. Do you love your life at the expense of others? Like I would, I would rather myself than somebody else. I'd rather take care of me than somebody else, which generally speaking is kind of the cultural flavor of the day. Jesus invites you to believe in him. You can you almost say it this way. It's, do you recognize you're in the image of the sun, not the sun is in the image of you? You're the image of the sun. So I hope you hear this throughout. The Father is perfectly satisfied with you because Jesus perfectly obeyed for you. We're going to see this throughout. And we're going to start with point one in verse 20. But before we go to verse 20, look right ahead in verse 19. I've already talked about it a little bit. How do the Pharisees end verse 19? Are they really excited that Jesus has come in? He got anointed. He's the Messiah. He's coming in. He's taking dominion. Are they excited? It's like, oh, no, everyone's going after him. What does that mean for the Pharisees? No one's coming after us. We lost our group. They're going after Jesus. You can almost, like, if you want to talk in today's speech, who does he think stealing from our people? Even the world has come after him. And you know, the world did. That's verse 20. Because who comes streaming in, and this is for the first time in the gospel, all Jesus really interacts with are Jews and then one Roman official. But now he's got the people. He's got the Greeks coming in. And, and it's John's way of basically sending the Gentiles, the nations who are streaming in. He's not just naming some random people group for the fun of it. It's Gentiles like you and me. It's, it's a rhetorical device that John uses saying, this part for the whole. It's as if all the nations are coming after him. But what feast are we at? If you remember, they're preparing for a feast here. And this is the feast the Greeks come to. This is Passover. That's not a Greek feast. That's a Jewish feast. And the Greeks come streaming in, fulfilling biblical prophecy, saying the nations will come in from the coastlands, because they're in a coast. Greek is on a coast. Greece is on a coast. They're coming in, literally from the coastlands, to come pray and worship the Lord. They approach Philip, who's a Jew, which is why John points out from Bethsaida in Galilee. That's a Jewish area of Judah. And they ask him to see Jesus. The Greeks, Gentiles, asking a Jew, we want to see Jesus. What, is, what does Philip do? This is kind of odd. 
This Philip, like, grabbed him by the hand, like, oh, let's walk over to Jesus. Where does he bring them to? Who does he go to first? He doesn't go to Jesus. He, he goes to Andrew. He's like, what do you think? Should they be able to see Jesus? The second, the person, the triune Godhead who has come to redeem them. I, I, think, I think this is why John points out Philip's Jewishness, if you want to call it that. He's, he's probably not sure, can Gentiles approach a Jew? Can Gentiles approach Jesus? Is this really part of Jesus' plan? Jesus, possibly for Philip, might have been for like cleaned up Jews. Those who are there for the feast, who know what they're doing. Sort of how we can think, you've got to look a certain way. You've got to be from a certain family. Think the right things to meet Jesus. Or else there's gatekeepers in front of Jesus. Like, I don't think you're ready yet. I don't think you're cleaned up yet. I don't think you're part of my tribe to come and meet Jesus. That's a little bit of what I think Philip goes through. And though Jesus doesn't explicitly respond to the Greeks' request in verse 21, he does react to their request. he, He comes and he says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And that should shock you. Because what does he say every single time before this? The hour has not come for the Son of Man to be glorified. When somebody says, hey, show us a sign, he's like, I can't do that yet because my time hasn't come. I can't reveal myself fully yet because my time hasn't come. And what does he say? Yeah, it's come. When the nations come and stream in. When they come and worship. It's when the nations come. It's when every tribe, tongue, people, and nation come and proclaim Jesus. And Jesus says, now is the time. This is when I'm glorified. When people come to me. And Jesus is careful before this point because he says that hour has not yet come, usually replying to unbelief. Can't do it yet. But now there's belief. And though I myself, me, know next to nothing about gardening, my wife has a garden. You can ask her. She knows a ton. I know nothing. Just things grow, like magically. Laying seed on the ground is, is I'm assuming... Not like a really fun thing. It's not like things immediately sprout up. You're like, oh, I get to see my fruit of labor immediately. It's a long process. But this uneventful affair, <coughs> affair brings a tremendous variety of beautiful vegetables, flowers that smell amazing, and then lawns that look better than dirt. As Jesus himself says in verse 24, Because in order for the ministry, the obedience, the perfect righteousness, the absolute pristine obedience of Jesus to bear fruits, he literally has to lay it on the grounds. I have to die so that I can bear fruits. And it may not be immediately apparent to them, like, this is kind of weird and it's going to take a long time, but okay. Unlike every other person in the history of redemption, up to and through this point, and as you know your own heart, 
no matter how selfless or philanthropic you kind of fancy yourself to be. Like he says in verses 25 to 26, you will use others' lives to keep your own. That's, that's kind of the rule of the day. If I can get ahead, I'll get ahead. If I can get this position, I'll get this position. If I leave a couple dead bodies, I'll leave a couple dead bodies. Even if you wouldn't say that, you're still going to do it. Maybe you'll like a white lie here, like a little white lie there to get ahead. To hear the one who loves his life will lose it. If there's, you can say, like a cultural faux pas today, something you definitely don't say, it's that. The one who loves his life will lose it. This is to say, everyone else but me. You, you actually flip that onto Ted, and you probably get the saying of the day. Me, and everyone else has to love me. To truly live, you might say, or you've heard, is look really deep, really deep within your own soul, and say, I find some truth in there. I need to bring out this truth within me. I need to really love myself. I need to really bring myself out. Then you'll find yourself. You'll, you, you'll hear, look within, and then you'll find yourself. Look at the truth deep hidden in your heart, and then you'll save yourself. You will save yourself. You could say that the way the current cultural translation of the Bible would be, the one who loves his life saves it. The one who really loves your life, you will save yourself. But I hate, I hate to tell you, you make, a help, you make a horrible savior for yourself and for others. He's saying, don't look inside for help. Don't look within. He says, look outside. Look outside for your help. Look for the perfection of Jesus for your help. So in order to hear, or in order to see Jesus rightly, you have to hear from Jesus. Not what you think of Jesus, what Jesus says about Jesus. That's what you have to hear. Which brings us to point two, hearing Jesus. Because he starts telling them, this is who I am. And they're like, are you really sure? Because we thought something different. You're telling us that's not right. I, I love verse 27. And maybe you're like, well, that's a weird verse to like in this. But I love verse 27. I love how Jesus describes the state of his own soul. Because theoretically, you might assent to the two natures of Christ. When it really comes down to it, it's like one nature and kind of another nature. It's like really divine and like kind of human. Like a, like a deified human of sorts. My guess is most see Jesus in their mind's eye kind of stoically walking to the cross. Has his mission set, walking without a care for the world. Saying, I'm doing this and I think nothing else besides doing this. He's accepting his fate without emotion, doing what needed to be done. And there's certainly some truth to this. He had a mission, and he was fulfilling it. And he was not swerving. But your understanding of Jesus will, will inform how you understand yourself. If you have no room for what I call, the, the, or what's been called the emotional life of Jesus, 
There's a book by B.B. Warfield, who's a famed Presbyterian, writing on exactly this topic, the emotional life of Jesus. You don't know the biblical Jesus. Because if you think he hides, you'll hide. If you think he doesn't have true emotion, you're like, can I have true emotion? Can I feel these things? Can I think these things? You will hide those emotions that aren't constantly joyful. You'll be told by people, well, Christians are always joyful. You're like, but I don't feel joyful. I don't feel good. Can I tell somebody that? Can I tell somebody that it's hard, that it hurts? Maybe you've been told that feeling deep grief, sorrow, pain, fear, and, and, and sometimes depression is like below Christians. Because you, you always have to, to put a, you have to put a good face on. You have a hard time with this. When Jesus says, yeah, this is hard. My soul is troubled. He says in the garden, I don't want to do this. But your will be done. He actually feels. It's like the author of Hebrews tells you, he's like you in every single way, except for sin. I think the way we look at Jesus is the way we look at ourselves. And so Jesus' soul is troubled. Really, actually, truly troubled. Not just like on the surface he looks troubled. He's actually troubled. He's committed, but he's troubled. And he comes for this purpose. He bears sorrows. This is Isaiah 53. He bears sorrows. He bears pain. He bears fear. He bears doubts and grief. And in like always, like us. But then in verse 27, at the end of it, he's committed. Father, glorify your name. Not glorify my name. Not make me big. But glorify your name. That's the crazy thing. Jesus didn't come for his glory. He came for the Father's glory, which glorified him. Did not come for just his glory. Came for the Father's glory, which glorified him. And then a voice booms from heaven. And if you know your Old Testament, when a voice comes from heaven, is it a good thing or a bad thing? It is always a bad thing. It is always a result of the Israelites doing something really dumb. And then God shouting from heaven is like, you messed up. I'm displeased with you. Get out of my face. But that's not what, what we see here. In verse 28, he says, I have glorified it. And I will glorify it again. He says it before. You are my son in whom I am well pleased. Not get away from me, but I will glorify you. You are perfectly doing what you were sent to do. Jesus wasn't all on his lonesome, experienced some, some private mountaintop experience. I think sometimes we think whenever he's heard from the Father, he's kind of alone. But he's got people around him, and they hear this voice. They hear this in verse 29. And, they, and get this, they hear an interaction, <coughs> much like David does in Psalm 110. They hear an interaction between the Father and the Son. They get access. 
which you can call intertrinitarian, so between the members in the Trinity, talk. They get to hear it. They hear the interaction, the pleasure the Father has in the Son's work, the obedience rendered by the Son to his Father, and then the joy the Father has in that obedience. The Son says, yes, I'll do it. And the Father says, this looks good. I like this. This glorifies me. And look at Jesus' response. Does he kind of bask in the glory? He's like, yeah, I'm, I'm pretty good. I got this thing figured out. He says, this is not for me. He said, this is for you who are listening. Father said this to the son, but this was not for the son. Because the son knows it. He knows the father is pleased with him. But the crowd, and you and I, we need to hear this. We need to hear the divine approval that the Father has in the Son, because that divine approval the Father has in the Son is the divine approval He has in you. He says it so you can hear it and say, yeah, that's mine. Yeah, that's yours. What the Father says to the Son, which is why it's audible, He says to you, so you can hear it. Because you're going to forget it. I'm going to forget it. You don't get leftovers with Jesus. You don't get kind of like the side benefits. You don't get tangential love. You don't get half love, partial love, like like the sun, but not really the sun. You get everything the sun has from the Father because the sun obeyed. Which is why he says exactly what he says. Where I am, you will be also. Not where I am, you're going to kind of trail along, get the leftovers. Where I am, you get that. You are with me. Not just beside me, not behind me, but you're with me. So the rulers of the world are cast out. But how are they cast out? Are they cast out through war? They're cast out, not through war, not through battle, not through struggle, not through strife. They're cast out by death and not theirs. They're cast out by the son's death, by the son's sacrifice. And Jesus' first coming, it's, it's not initially judgment, it's sacrifice. Rendered upon the rulers, the authorities, and the powers, but the judgment is rendered eventually upon the son, you can say it's deferred. He's saying, yeah, that judgment placed on the son, get ready. Because if you're not in the son, that's coming for you. Which is why he says this judgment's coming. And who are Jesus's? And all who are Jesus's in verse 32 will be lifted up. Yeah, not beside him, not behind him, not just attached to him, but intimately united with him. You were lifted up with him in his sacrifice. So now that you've heard from Jesus, and from Jesus, not just kind of your own thoughts imposed upon Jesus, do you trust in this Jesus? Not the Jesus of our imagination or what the culture thinks, but in this Jesus that we hear from. Which is the last point, trusting Jesus. So remember who's standing around. 
Jesus is the Father booms from heaven, and, and Jesus explains his mission. The Greeks are, are probably still there, and there's a crowd which is generally in John's use the Jews. There's probably both groups who are still here. Because this is an intense period of preparation for Passover. So Jews are all over the place getting ready. The Greeks come streaming in, we see in verse 20. So now we come to verse 34, when the crowd digests what Jesus has proclaimed, and they are confused. They say, we, we have heard from the law that the Christ, and I'm going to emphasize it, remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? And you can hear it almost like incredulously, like, are you serious? Who is this Son of Man? Like a mocking question. That's not what we thought. A preconceived notion, a presupposition precludes their belief. Say, we had an idea and you're not our idea. I don't think you're the one. And maybe you too have a preconceived notion of who Jesus is. Maybe you have an idea of who you think he should be. I'd really rather you were like this, Jesus. Then it'd be a lot easier to believe in you. Maybe the Jesus of the Bible doesn't match up with the Jesus of your image. And like the crowd responding to Jesus, you say, are you, are you sure you're the real Jesus? Because you're not what I thought. You're not what I expected. My Jesus would never say these things. He never judges. He would never judge me. That's essentially what the crowd's doing. But like in an ancient way. And they, they don't have precedent, but they take language from a few passages. And it's mainly Isaiah 9, Ezekiel 37, Daniel 7, and Psalm 110. If you think of like the really highly charged messianic passages, they're reading those through their lens. Saying, yeah, the Messiah is going to be here forever. You can say they've taken eschatological, so the things that are coming last, end things, and they flatten it. Saying there's no difference. Things are the same. Language that's meant to point to the new heavens and earth. They say, no, we want that now. Before that, we want, that, we want this now. And, and notice, and I, I, I really, I specifically emphasized the law that the Christ remains forever. Because they're not thinking of a heavenly priest. They're thinking the Messiah comes and doesn't leave. He stays put. But now they see this Jesus who says, no, I'm going to die. Like, no, you're not. You're going to stay. He's supposed to come to earth kick butt, take names, and establish his throne immediately and say, things are different now. A decidedly earthly rulership, not ascended rulership. That's what they want. We want it now. But that means Jesus doesn't do precisely what he sent on this earth to do die and rise again to ascend back to the Father, 
that he might send the spirit of redemption back down to his people. He can't do that if he stays on earth. And he tells them, I can't bring the helper. I can't bring the comforter. I can't bring the advocate if I don't go back up. And everyone's saying, stay with us. He's like, I can't do anything for you if I stay with you. No ascent means no redemption. It's that simple. You wanted Jesus in your image according to your preferences, you don't get redemption. You want that Jesus, Jesus who describes himself, that's where you get the redemption. So he comes to the conclusion of this portion of John 12. And Jesus proclaims in verse 36, the light is among you, and notice how he ends, for a little while longer. You can, you can kind of hear between the lines. That's by design. It can't be any other way. If I don't go up, I can't send my spirit to save you. If I stay here, earthly, I can't save you. I can't redeem you. And this is exactly where Jesus goes in John 14 to 16. He kind of pre- preliminarily describes it and it gets fully descriptive in John 14 to 16. He says, while you have the lights, believe in the lights that you might become sons of light. Now, what's he saying? He says, I'm the son of the father. You will be sons of the father. You'll be sons and daughters of the father. As much as I'm son of the father, you will be. You get my sonship. You get my authority. We share kingship. Well, you have the light, believe in the light. Because when Jesus is lifted up in complete vindication, he already says this, you will be lifted up. And that's just not just floating up in the air, that's vindication. Everything's done. You're with the Father. Belief in Christ credits the Son's work to your account by the Spirit sent down when Jesus ascends. The Father looks at you exactly how he spoke to the Son when the crowd hears it. That's how the Father speaks to you. He looks at you, your record, and speaks to you as, I've glorified you, and I will continue to glorify you. I'm well pleased in you. In you. He says, I'm well pleased in you because of the Son. As much as I'm pleased in the Son is as much as I'm pleased in you. And that's, that's a lot. The Father looks at you in all your confused, bewildered, downcast mess and says, I'm pleased with you. Your life is glorifying to the Father in the Son who glorified the Father. Let's pray. Lord, these are truths that is, they're, hard to, they're hard to stick for us. It's hard for us to, to realize just how much we've been <coughs> given in your Son. That we look upon him we hear him, we trust him, and you look at us in the same way as you look at the sun. And Lord, so we can lose our life. We can cast off our desires. And Lord, it's not easy, but then it's not about us. 
We can say, yeah, I want, I want your glory. And that means I can give off my own. I can give it off joyfully. It's not a, it's not a fair trade because your glory is so much greater than our glory is. But Lord, that is precisely what you've given us. Glory that we can never trade off. Glory that we can never give enough to others and still have so much more left. It's inexhaustible. Lord, we thank you for what you've done for us and your son. Pray that you remind us of these truths, insert them deeply into our hearts. Pray this all in your son's name. Amen.